Open your Bibles uh, to Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we're going to be uh, camped out. This is parts of Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 5. But uh, before I jump into the Bible, I, just, I, I want to acknowledge the fact that um, in every marriage, there is an imperfect spouse. Don't point. This is an awesome thing that happens at weddings. Uh, when I officiate weddings, I often will, will uh, do premarital counseling with the, the couple. and uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to know one another in their heart. And they're, they're just gushing with love for the other, always. I can't believe I get to marry this person. Love of my life. So I've waited so long. Uh, the doors in the back of the church open wide, the organ's playing, and down the aisle comes this bride. She's glowing. The groom is, is there just sometimes crying. He's so excited. She's thinking to herself, what a wonderful day. I can't believe this is happening. I finally get to marry the man of my dreams. And uh, the groom looks at me often, and he'll be like, can we hurry this along? Because she'll find out I'm a fake, and then she'll call it off. So let's go. Often at the altar, we each look at the other, and we say, man, I'm so lucky to get you. And then the couple will go on their honeymoon and it's bliss, hopefully. Uh, failed honeymoon stories where there's like, you know, lizards in your bed and like things like that. Awesome stories, but oftentimes great experiences. And then you come back and you live life together. And, and, and um, over time, cracks form in the paint. And how true is it, we call this the honeymoon is over. How true is it that sometimes spouses will days, weeks, months, years, decades Later, look at the other person and say, I can't believe I had to marry you. Again, don't point. My wife and I have been married for eight years, uh, which is not that long, but long enough for us to know that each one of us has fatal flaws. Um, I won't list my wife's because the list is very short. <clears throat> I learned that lesson the first time I preached this. One of her fatal flaws is that she's always on time. Always. Are you a late person? You can't admit it because there's a bunch of judgmental on time people all around you. <laughs> I'm totally a late person. I, I struggle to show up to appointments on time. And um, this, this bore itself out. Just weeks after Chris and I were married, we uh, ha had a trip to take to the East Coast to visit her family. I'd never met them. We had to make it to the airport. And we played that game, you know, that how, long is mid how far away is Midway Airport really game? You play that game, we're like, is it an hour? Is it 30 minutes? I surely can make it in 45. Back in 2009, when we were trying to figure this out, we had like one of those really old iPhones that kind of gave you an estimation of how long it would take you to get to a certain place. And back in the day, those were not very accurate. Today, it's pretty good. But back in the day, you could take the time, and if you were a late person like me, that's my fatal flaw, if you, could, if you were a late person, you just shave like 15, 20 minutes off of that, and you'd be good. And so came that fateful day, I, I told Kristen we'll leave at this time, we got in the car, we, we arrived at Midway Airport, only to have 30 minutes to get from the door of our car to the gate. And so we hopped on the bus, which broke down. My wife, fresh in a marriage, it's okay, honey, we'll make it, I'm sure, it'll be fine, I trust you completely. We got to the security line, and she changed her tune. <laughs> All of a sudden, my sweet wife was going... And I started praying like I never prayed before. Dear God, please save my marriage and help this line to move. <laughs> so intense. So, oh, I just felt like this is it. This is it. We had a good run. We had a solid three weeks together. This is it. <laughs> Life is over. Remember back in the day when security lines, you had to like give them everything you owned. 
And so I would take my shoes off. Why did I wear boots and got a belt and all this stuff? And we get through the line. Someone was kind enough. God heard my cry. Someone was like, you guys look really stressed. Do you want to go ahead of me? And I was like. And so we kind of went around them and, and got through the line. And, and you know, like you got that area. It's like some places they call it a recombobulation area where you put everything back on. And I, um, I'm trying to sit down and put my shoes on. And my wife is grabbing everything and sprinting ahead, calling over her shoulder. No time for shoes. No time for belts. No, we can't get coffee, you addict. Let's go. And I humbly pick up my shoes and my belt and I'm flailing through midway looking at all the coffee places I can get coffee for my flight and going, okay, 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 okay we'll go, we'll, 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 fine. And we're running, we're running and we get to the gate and the, the, the flight attendant is mid-motion closing that giant door to the thing and we're yelling, no! She hears us, she stops. We're here, we're here, we're here. You know you were, so I know we were supposed to be, I'm always late, can't you just give me some grace? She goes, sure. We, Get onto the plane, huffing and puffing. Kristen looks at me, and I said, see, I told you we didn't need to leave any earlier. <laughs> Not the right words. Like I said, in every marriage, there is an imperfect spouse. And how sweet would it be if in all of our marriages, the only tension that we felt was occasionally running late to the airport. I know so many of us today, you drove, uh, you drove into church today. I don't know if it's still foggy. It was foggy when I drove in. And you feel like that's a metaphor for your relationship right now. It's just foggy. It just feels foggy. It feels like we're in a fog. We're not communicating well. It seems like every time we try and talk about the kids or my job or, or whose house we're going to go spend Christmas at this year, it is fraught with a fight. And, and if only they would see it my way, then everything in life would be happy. We, we feel these wicked thoughts, honestly. We, we feel this, uh, well, well if, if only he would pay more attention to me. If only she would keep the house clean. If only he would realize that I work hard too. If, if only he would come home, at, at, come home at least at a reasonable hour. Then, then. We'd have bliss if only they would fix their imperfection. In every marriage, there is an imperfect spouse. And that's because in every marriage, there are imperfect people. I should really say this more correctly. In every marriage, there are two imperfect spouses. The Christian life is not a, a, a Christian marriage is not a marriage where we are uh, two saints who never sin joined together glorifying God in all things because we are perfect. No, the Christian marriage, the reality of what God does in marriage is that he unites two sinners together, two imperfect people together, only to realize that we need more saving. We need what the Bible calls sanctification. We need to be made into the image of Christ in marriage. And we need to recognize this reality lest we fall into the trap that the world has laid before us. That doesn't actually look like marriage from God's perspective. It looks like marriage from the mind of Walt Disney. I love my daughter is four years old. She's watching all of these old Disney classics, uh, Cinderella, Beauty and the Beast, all of these great movies. And in every single one of them, the, the princess goes through some struggle, 
and gets a prince, and woodland creatures are there at their wedding, approving everything that goes along, and they live happily ever after. And that is not God's design for marriage. I just want to just take that off the table for you for a moment. God has something better for you in store. See, God desires for the prince and the princess to grow up, to become a king and a queen. See, Disney stops short with this sort of like, they just live happily ever after in this little state of, of innocent youth. But, but God wants you to grow into maturity. God wants you to grow into a depth of love. And to do so requires conflict. It requires that those sharp edges of our souls, which are imperfect, might be rubbed smooth by the gospel being worked out in your marriage. What is a Christian marriage? Christian marriage, if I could just hazard a, a definition, it's, it's, it's a marriage where sinful people confront their sin and shame in moments of absolute vulnerability with one another. And when done God's way, at the cross, the result is a deepening of faith and trust and love and flourishing. Marriage, whether it's Christian or not, it digs up some crazy stuff in people's hearts, doesn't it? Stuff that we weren't prepared for at the altar, stuff that we didn't see coming, stuff that is really messy and dark and painful. And I'm here with some good news for you today that only Christ has a solution to the mess of your marriage. And only Christian marriages have the potential to thrive in that only word I can think of is ickiness of the moments that we need God's grace. So, that being said, the decision to get married is not the decision just to have babies. The decision to get married is not the decision to make more money together than we could apart. The decision to get married is not the decision even to have companionship. The decision to get married is the decision to grow in the midst of covenantal struggle and blessing, which matures us and produces in us Christ-likeness. Here's my big idea for us today. We are called to love our imperfect spouses the way that God has loved imperfect me. That's your calling in life, to love your imperfect spouse the way God has loved imperfect you and imperfect me. And I think this is what Paul's getting at in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 21. We start there this morning. I think this is the apex of Paul's argument in the, the three chapters at the end of Ephesians. That, that Christians are to be living there, to be submitting to one another out of reverence to Christ. We get that right and wrong in so many ways. And we look at a couple of the words in there and we, get, we don't even understand what they mean. We ask the question, what, is, what does it mean to submit? If I could propose this to us today, it's that um, submission is intentionally soliciting hearing, valuing, and enacting the opinions and perspectives of another. Submission is living with the other's best interest in mind. This has always been a hallmark of Christianity. Uh, if we could walk through, I don't have time to do this, but if we could walk through Paul's letter in the book of, of Ephesians, and what he's trying to, his argument here, you know, Pastor Steve tells us often, you can't just parachute into a text, you've got to understand what the argument is. So thankful for a pastor that knows how to study the Bible, Amen. So if we could take his advice here to understand what, what Paul is actually getting at here, his, his main argument is that the church, the church would be the manifestation to the world of God's reconciling power. All throughout 
Paul's letter to the Ephesians, we read that the church is united because of Christ. And it pulls us together, reconciles us across all sorts of divisions. Racial divisions, gender divisions, uh, socioeconomic divisions. And Christ at the cross reconciles all of us to become one body. And that body plays itself out when the members of that body work together in harmony and unity and submission towards one another. And verse after verse, Paul pushes this theme to its apex, I want to say is right here in verse 21. That Christ followers should be known as people who live in humility and mutual submission because of our love for Jesus Christ. The world doesn't understand this. They say, why would you give up your power? Why aren't you looking out for number one? Why aren't you taking care of your business? And we join the Apostle Paul in the chorus of saints. And in what he says here, we say, it's because we revere Christ the most. Kevin, thank you for amening. You're the only one. It's like a thousand people in the room right now and I got one amen. I'll preach harder, I guess. Amen? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so Pastor Steve said this two weeks ago. He said that we want to be people who live for the applause of heaven. We want to be people whose lives are marked all about him, who live for, for hearing the well done that comes from God. And if we would take that thought and put it over our marriages and, and submit ourselves to one another out of our reverence for Christ, it would really change a lot in the context of our families. And so in Paul's theology, God's actions towards us are the template for our actions towards one another. As God is and as God does, so you should be and you should do. And this is how he speaks in Ephesians 4, which we'll see some of that in a moment in Ephesians 5. And when he comes to this topic of spouses, the, the passage I want to read, a longer passage, one that we've looked at many times as a church, I'm sure, Ephesians 5, through 33. I don't want to spend all of our time there. I want to just situate it in the context of what Paul is already doing. He's talking about how the church demonstrates the unity to the world when we are reconciled to one another. And notice when he comes to marriage, how often he speaks of how this is a reflection of the gospel, how, like that video said, this is actually about that. Check this out. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, check this out, even as Christ is the head of the church, it's a template, his body and his himself, it's savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And husbands, love your wives as Christ as Christ loved the church, as Christ loved the church, and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, you see it? Husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. And then Paul quotes Genesis. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, since this is about that, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. And there's a lot I could say here about how the church has gotten this right in the past 
many years and how the church has gotten this wrong in the many, many years. And I could speak 10 messages on this uh, text here, but for the, for the point of this today, I, I simply want to highlight the fact that we have a template here that is given to all of us for what our marriages ought to be. And that is, as God is and does, so we also must be and do. And so what does Christ and the church have to do with our marriages? Well, chapters 4 and chapter 5 have already told us that, that when we have marriages that work themselves out in mutual submission and love and reverence for Christ, the world sees the reconciling power of the gospel. This is Paul's teaching here, and he wants us to look at the whole thing, not just these 10, 11 verses. He wants us to see that marriage is a symbol of the gospel, that the mystery of marriage is actually understood at the shadow of the cross. And so if marriage is about the gospel, and the gospel is about imperfect people stumbling together and finding grace and reconciliation and forgiveness from the cross, what does that mean for me and you to live when we are married uh, to imperfect spouses? How are we called to love our imperfect spouses? spouse. It has a lot to say to us. And I have three actions, three gifts, so to speak, that God gives us that he wants us to give to our spouse. The first one is this. I think that um, heaven applauds. Heaven applauds, right? That's the aim. When we revere Christ most, heaven applauds. So heaven applauds when I give my spouse, when I give you forgiveness. I've preached this message a couple times now, and the most awkward moment of it's coming up right now. Because I, I want you to look at your spouse if you're here with them. Look at them. All right, now look away. Okay, good. So we broke the ice. All right. And uh, I want you to say that out loud. Heaven applauds when I give you forgiveness. Go ahead. Heaven applauds when I give you forgiveness. It's a very, very hard and awkward thing to say when you're sitting right next to the person, isn't it? Because sometimes in life we have to extend forgiveness for little things. Oh, I forgot the milk again. I can't believe it. Will you forgive me? What are you talking about? Yeah, sure, I forgive you. Why not? Just remember it next time. Did someone amen that? <laughs> Isn't it true, though? Isn't it true, though? Sometimes in life we're called upon to forgive in the big things. The things that... Um, I don't even need to bring them up because they're already cycling through your mind as the things that you've had to forgive or won't forgive. These are the soul-crushing, I didn't see that coming, your actions have brutally affected my life kind of things. And because a spouse is the person who knows us most intimately, they have the most potential to wound us the most deeply. And when they sin against us, it hurts the most. It seems to me in, in my per perspective as a pastor that when people are wounded, we've been conditioned to exact revenge in the same twisted eye-for-an-eye eye manner that sin was committed against us. I remember not too long ago sitting in my office having one spouse confess to having an affair, which in retaliation the other spouse committed their own affair. And um, statistics tell me that that's not an uncommon occurrence. We have an eye for an eye. You hurt me this way, I'll hurt you that way. You bought this, so I get to buy this. You went here, so I get to go here. And we keep records and we keep uh, wrongs in line and we have to balance the equation in some twisted eye for an eye way. And when one spouse proves their imperfections by sinning against another, a subverted power structure is set up. I don't know if you've ever felt this. Some of us have been on both sides of the equation here. 
the guilty spouse who sins is all of a sudden indebted to the innocent spouse. And too many offended spouses hold unforgiveness over the head of the guilty spouse as a way to make them pay for their sins. One author, I think his uh, name is Jeff uh, Van Vonderen, uh, he says this. He says, uh, one reason why people don't or won't forgive is because it is a way for them to have the upper hand over another. It holds the other in a position of, of owing a debt they cannot repay. And feeling in a, held in a constant state of being unforgiven keeps some people scrambling to discover what good behavior it will take on their part to make up for what they have done wrong. In a very real and devilish sense, unforgiveness becomes an effective tool to control another's behavior. And Paul says this is a part of the old self we need to put away if we are in Christ. Look back at Ephesians 4 verse 31. Check this out with me. Look at what he says. He says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted. Say this with me. Forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. And I just wonder today if, if, if in your family when your spouse sins against you, is there bitterness in your heart? When your spouse imperfectly sins against you as the imperfect person they are, do you make them pay? Is there hell to pay? When your imperfect spouse sins against you, do you get angry? Do you run around the house throwing things and breaking picture frames? When your imperfect spouse sins against you, do you get on the phone and call your parents and tell them what just happened? Even worse, do you bring it to the kids? When your imperfect spouse sins against you, do you hold it over their head and make them pay? Paul says, as Christ forgave, so you forgive. And if you feel your spouse owes you something, you have not forgiven them. What is forgiveness? Forgiveness is simply love that pays a price. And the good news of the gospel is found right here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, right at the end. As God in Christ forgave you. Now, I'm not a tattoo guy. I know I look like a tattoo guy. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't have a tattoo. If I did, this is my tattoo right here. God in Christ forgave you. You have my pastoral authorization to tattoo that on your body. <laughs> because those words are such precious words to the believer. It's a simple reminder to me of the fact that I'm not a saint without a record. I've got a rap sheet as a husband that's longer than I care to admit. The record of my sins over my life is embarrassingly long. And, and I know that I grew up in a very churchy home with a strong sense of morality, which means by all accounts, I should be better than I actually am. I've needed God to forgive me. And forgive me, he has. Out of his loving heart, he sent Jesus to pay the price for my sins 
to take my place. God's love has paid the price for sin, enabling me to experience his forgiveness. So if you are married and, and this is really about that, you will have to pay a price for the sins that the other commits against you. And likewise, they will have to pay a price for the sins that you commit against them. And check this out. Apart from Christ, you cannot forgive. I mean, you can go through the motions and you can say the words, but you cannot pay the price on the behalf of the other person and experience the supernatural uh, forgiveness that God actually gives those who love him. It takes knowing Jesus and knowing his heart and having been forgiven yourself to be able to extend that forgiveness. Which is why it's so amazing that God would come and forgive us. There is such hope and potential in this room right now because Christ has come. Peace can be felt in marriages because Christ has come. You no longer have to live in the fog of dis dis dysfunction and confusion and chaos in your marriage because Christ has come. And if you have been forgiven, God in Christ says you can forgive as well. It's this amazing thing that God does in our hearts. And I know, I know, I know that some of you in this room are living in homes where it feels like hell. I don't have time and I wasn't asked to talk about domestic violence. I wasn't asked to talk about abuse. I don't have time to talk about the various forms of abuse that exist, not just physical abuse or sexual abuse, but emotional and spiritual abuse. And what I want you to hear from our church very clearly is that forgiveness does not mean endurance. If you're in an unhealthy situation and you are being abused, we as a church stand with you and ask that you would let us know so that we can help you. We will help you find healing, but also to find forgiveness. It's so hard to, to wrap our minds around the fact that even though I might not need to stay in the same house, I still need to forgive because that's the calling that God's given to me. You say, Dan, I don't have it. I can't forgive them. You don't know what my spouse has done. They deserve hell. And when I think about that, that thought and when I think about that reality that exists in so many tense marriages, I am often drawn back to the day when Jesus was uh, set up by the Jews and crucified by the Romans. Do you remember that day? We, we, we think about that often at Good Friday. And I think about the people that on the way to the cross, Jesus saved. The first person that comes to mind is that notorious ringleader of a criminal, Barabbas, who was a wretched sinner, a vile murderer, who by all accounts should have been the person that, that all of the Jews feared the most. And yet on that day, Jesus literally took Barabbas' place on the cross. I think about the second person that, person that Jesus uh, saved on the cross was the thief next to him. And we don't know what he stole. Wouldn't you like to know what he stole? It seems like such a, an unjust punishment. It was bad enough, though, that the Romans thought he should die. And on the cross, Jesus says to him as he says, surely this man, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. The third person that Jesus saves at the cross is a Roman guard who looks up at Christ and, and says, surely this man was the son of God. He has remorse over his sin for crucifying God. 
This Roman guard who had been a cog in the systemic wheel of injustice done by the Romans. We call him a corrupt governmental employee. The fourth person that Jesus saves that Easter was, I think of the, the, the garden when Jesus arose from the dead. And there seeking him, not knowing he was alive, but finding him alive was Mary Magdalene. Who by all accounts we believe was a prostitute. So while I don't know what your spouse has done, I know that in Christ, it includes even those who are organized gang leaders and those who have stolen and those who have been a part of systemic injustice and those who are prostitutes, including all of them in Christ, we all get a second chance. Amen? Amen. That's the good news of the gospel, that God in Christ has forgiven us. Forgiveness, it was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And I don't really have time, but I want to just say a word to those in the room who have more recently been the one who's proven your imperfections to your spouse. You've most recently sinned against your spouse. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13 that love keeps no records of wrongs. That's good news. But the very next words he says are that love does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. Which means that forgiveness is no excuse to persist in sin. Forgiveness is not a cleansing of memory or a restoration of trust. Your actions have consequences. You reap what you sow. The easiest example is if you cheat on your wife, it's going to take her a lot of time before she can even look at you, man. But she can find it in Christ to forgive you. And when she does, heaven will erupt with the praise of the Father. Because the gospel will have won. What was impossible with man has been made possible with God. And that is good news. Heaven applauds when I give you forgiveness. That's the first thing. Amen? Amen. Good luck on that with the rest of your life. That'll take some time. Two, two shorter gifts as well that I want to highlight from Ephesians chapter 4 and Ephesians chapter 5. If heaven applauds when I give you forgiveness, there's another truth for loving my imperfect spouse. It's that heaven applauds when I give you freedom. The immortal words of, of that movie, which should have won best picture, frozen. <laughs> Got to let it go. Um, can you look at your spouse one more time and just tell them, let it go. Let it go. All right, if you think that was juvenile, just wait for this, okay? Um, <clears throat> I grew up in the 90s. There's this awesome Disney movie in the 90s called Aladdin. Have you seen Aladdin? Yeah, dude, kids don't watch Aladdin anymore, and this is a travesty. I'm going to start a campaign to get kids to watch Aladdin. The whole thing is about this genie who falls into helpless Aladdin's uh, hands, and he hooks him up in a big way, and the genie lives to serve. He's delighted at the thought of how great he can make Aladdin's world. Aladdin... Um, Finds out in conversation, he doesn't know what to wish for. He's new to this whole wishing thing. He's never wished for anything in his life. And so he asked the genie at one point, well, genie, what would you wish for? And the genie has this great thing he does, and he says, I wish for freedom. And Aladdin, he says, great, well, I'll use my first two wishes on me, and I'll give your, you my third wish, and I'll wish for your freedom. And then, of course, in classic narrative form, there's all these complications, and it doesn't work out the exact way they thought it would. And I'll let you watch the rest of the movie. This is a good picture of how many people treat their marriages. This is a good picture of how many pe people treat dating. I'll give you what you want once I get what I want. 
So many people feel trapped in their marriage even though they long for their spouse to be happy and content. They would do anything to help with their spouse having a better life. And what I just described is a picture of what many people think of when they think of the word submission. I'm going to make you my master and your wish is my command. What I came today to tell the Crown Point campus is that performance-based relationships do not provide freedom. It brings spiritually dependent idolatry. And here's, here's what that means, spiritually dependent idolatry. It, it means um, it's that thing when your spouse doesn't meet your high standards, it's often interpreted this way. Um, well, they don't love me because they didn't do this thing for me. I must not be worth it for them to do this thing for me. Something, therefore, must be wrong with me. They see something in me that is a fatal flaw. So you know what I'm going to do? To help them love me more, I'm going to fix myself. I can do better. I'm going to try and be more and do more for them so that they'll be more and do more for me. And that is a cycle of imprisonment. You have created for yourself a master that you must please. And and the way you go about granting their wishes is to to try so hard that you are at their beck and call and live for their excitement. Within no time at all, you have created an idol of your spouse. You worship their mood. Hey, kids, stay away from dad today. He's in one of his moods. Trying to run interference for your husband and make their life a little better. And you make sacrifices for their happiness. Babe, just tell me what you want. I just want you to be happy. In my, my, my um, life, I, I see this viciousness uh, so often, freedom. Uh, I have no freedom because my wife becomes my idol. That's the idea. And there are times in our house where um, we've got a bunch of people that live in our house. We have five people in our house. Most of them are under the age of four, so that's kind of crazy. And um, sometimes I like to give my wife a break. You know, being at home, it's just helpful for her to have adult conversations. And so I'll, I'll be at home, and um, I'll think to myself, man, when Kristen comes home, it probably would really make her feel good if I, like, did the dishes. Like, she'd probably be happy if, like, I did this. In fact, if, if, if she came home and, and saw the dishes were done, she'd probably walk in the house and be like, babe. I'm the luckiest woman in the world. <laughs> what did I do to deserve you? Like, out of all the women, you chose me. I think the best thing for us to do right now is to go to Paris to celebrate our love for one another. Would you just go with me? We can have a romantic getaway because I love you so much. Thank you, my darling. And so you know what I do? I go and I do the dishes. And the whole time I go... Nailing it. <laughs> Kristen comes home. And in our house, you got to walk through the kitchen when you come home through the garage. And oftentimes when I've done this and I find my heart like desperate for her affection and desperate for her happiness to be reciprocated back to me for what I've done, I, um, I'll stand there and I'll say, hey, babe, how's your day? And I'll like open up one of the doors to our cupboards and show her all of the clean dishes pretty good. Did you have a good day? I'm not listening to her at all. I have no idea what she's saying. She's complaining about something. And I'll just rub my hand over the countertops. Oh, I'm so sorry you had a hard day. And you know what happens every single time? Nothing. Absolutely. She, she looks and she talks and then she leaves. And then here's the point. Here's the point. Here's the point. In my heart, in my heart, 
in my selfish, imperfect heart, I go from excited to serve my wife to bitter that she didn't notice what I did. And all of a sudden, my internal thoughts start to go like this. What? Am I the dish guy now? Leave it around the house for Dan. He'll do the dishes. He just does the dishes. We expect for him to do the dishes. Maybe I'll get like a little hat and gloves. Dan does the dishes. I'll stop doing the dishes. You'll see how often I do the dishes. How do you like that? How wicked. I judge from your laughter that you might have felt that way too. And how dangerous it is for us to put imperfect people in the place of the perfect God. Here's what Paul has to say about that. He wants us to put our spouses in the right relation to God. Twice in Ephesians 5, Paul subtly makes this point, and it's subtle. you got to see it. First to wives, second to the husbands. Here's what he says to the wives. For the husband is the head of the wife, and then check this out. Even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And here's what I want you to see. If we deny our theology, we could, crawl, we could draw the conclusion from this verse that since Christ is the head of the church, and Christ is the savior of the church, then by syllogism, the logical argument then follows, since the husband is the head of the wife, then the husband is the savior of the wife. That's not only bad logic, that's heretical theology, that's not even Paul's point. What Paul is saying is simply this, wives, who is your savior? Always and forever, only Jesus. You cannot draw more satisfaction and self-worth in your heart from your husbands than you can from Christ. Your husband can be a resource to encourage your heart, but he is not the source of your true joy. And likewise, husbands, verse 25 says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And an equal and opposite error could be made on this verse, where, where I've even heard this verse preached before. Husbands, your job is to sanctify your wife, to cleanse her with the washing of the water, which is the word, so speak the word over her, present her in splendor, without wrinkle or spot, keep her pure, holy, blameless. This is your job. And guys, here's what I want you to know. You cannot sanctify your wife any more than you can stop lake effect snow. That is not your job. Guys, whose job is that? Guys, whose job is that? He's doing a very good job of it, by the way. What's your role? How do you give your spouse freedom? How do you release her from being the genie in the bottle that God doesn't want her to be? To being the person who helps shape you into Christ's likeness and you shape her into Christ's likeness. How does that work? Well, it works like this. When, when, when your wife honors you in her respect towards you, when you see her sacrificing for you, you do not receive that authority with the demands and self-promotion saying, yeah, well, you, of course I deserve to do this. I'm the head of the house. Instead, you receive it with the awareness that you have been saved by Jesus' sacrificial love. That you are set apart and made pure by Jesus who calls you worthy in his sight. 
You are not your wife's savior. You are her loving and kind husband who should model the love of Christ. At some point, I must realize that my wife's relationship with the Lord is her greatest hope. And my job is simply to be a godly influence in her life as God does that work. And that will change your perspective on your imperfect spouse, won't it? It's not up to me to shame her into loving God or control her into loving God more or to manipulate her with the Bible into loving God more. My job is to encourage her flourishing, to encourage her giftedness, to encourage her serving, to encourage her passions. And her job is to encourage my giftedness and my passions and my flourishing and my serving. That's what it means to give your spouse freedom. That's what it means to give them uh, true freedom in the Lord. And a Christian marriage is one where both husband and wife are submitted to the Lord. And then in that healthy relationship, loving one another. And finally and quickly, one last thought on how to love my imperfect spouse the way God loves imperfect me. I think heaven applauds when I give you the gift. The marital gift that God gave your marriage is forgiveness. The marital gift, the, the wedding gift, so to speak, that he gave your uh, marriage is, 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 uh, is what I just said. What I say? I'm going to preach it one more time. Freedom. I'm stuck on my next point because it's, it's so helpful. Heaven applauds when I give you full worth. Full worth. The spouse that sins against another, the spouse that doesn't live up to the other standards can quickly feel devalued and worthless. We got a word for that in our, in our society. We call that shame. The idea that what I've done lessens my value. I must perform to earn back my value. And the spouse that keeps a list of wrongs and brings them up in a fight is shaming the other, stripping the other of their worth. And I've been in a couple of churches now only to realize that spouses everywhere tend to shame their spouse, hoping that it will fix them. And when all it does is devastate them and entrench them into deeper cycles of sin. When did you ever see Jesus shame someone? Perhaps, maybe marginally, I recall the time Jesus confronted the Pharisees over their hypocrisy. He said, woe to you, teachers of the law, you hypocrites. But I think of another time when Jesus said seven statements in Revelation, the seven letters to the churches. Each one of them were striving in the wrong way somehow, needing correction, needing uh, repentance, but we don't see Jesus shame them. We see him instead using his words to build up, not tear down. And this is what Paul says the church should do and what marriages should do. Back in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, last verse I want to look at today is this. Look what he says. He says, rather, speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. Rather, speaking the truth in love, you see it, we're to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. From whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. When each part is working properly. Makes the body grow so that it's circular. Look at this. It builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love builds the body up in love. Speaking the truth in love in your marriage builds your marriage up in love. How do you give full worth to your spouse and not resort to shaming them? You treat them like the fully loved person they are and you speak to them truthfully. Speaking the truth in love, it grows us into Christ, which is a beautiful picture of how God uses your words to actually speak life into your marriage. When we speak the truth in love, we are not shameful. Instead, those moments of hurt, we learn to acknowledge them. We learn to say, hey, this really hurt me. 
Speaking the truth in love helps us to, to be secure enough in our relationship with Christ to not assume that our imperfect spouse did the sinful thing against us because they hate us. That's shame speaking in your mind. I must not be enough for them, therefore they did this to me. No, no, speaking the truth in love recognizes that each one of us needs Jesus. Which means when we speak the truth in love, we can fully reveal who we are and our own imperfections. And we can fully hear the hurts, the insecurities, the desires, the frustrations, and the sadness that exists in our spouse's heart. So many people get married and they go on a honeymoon and it's so fun. And they establish this communication basis where there's an issue, there's an elephant in the room, but we're just going to tiptoe around that with kind words because I don't want to offend my spouse. I need to speak the truth in love, but we never speak the truth. We just act in kindness. What we need to be gospel people to help grow in maturity is to learn to confront the hard things in a way where we don't shame the other, where we give them full value so that the body builds itself up in love. Avoiding phrases like, well, how would you like it if I... Or you're just like your dad, like father, like son. Or you're supposed to submit to me. Or you're not being a very good spiritual leader. Those are not truth and love statements. Those are shaming statements designed to control. Paul says when the gospel is at work, allowing us to build up our church and our community and our families and our marriages, it works when we are honest with one another out of a desire for flourishing. When we're able to give each other full worth, we're able to give each other our full hearts. And this is hard for us because each one of us has been programmed to not reveal the icky stuff about us. To, to, to think that when I tell you my deepest, darkest shame, you're going to respond back to me with, I can't believe that, I'm out of here. And in the gospel marriage, here's how it happens when we speak the truth in love. Hey, this is what I'm dealing with. I'm depressed. Been depressed for a long time. I just need you to know it. And the full value spouse is going to come back with that and say, not We'll just get over it. We'll just be happy. Well, am I not enough for you to make it about themselves? The, the full value spouse who sees their imperfections of their spouse in the gospel is going to come back and say, wow, I'm sorry. How can I help you? I'm so sorry you're going through this. You know I'm here for you. You know I love you and I'm not going anywhere. And it's hard to divulge that part of yourself that is so personal to somebody else and hear them say back to you, wow, but that doesn't change anything. And yet, that is such a picture of the gospel. That God in our sin pursued us, knew us fully, and loved us fully so that we might live without shame, so that we might be restored as full people. Tim Keller says it this way. I just want to close on this quote. He says, the reason that marriage is painful and yet wonderful at the same time is because it is a reflection of the gospel, which is painful and wonderful at once. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And Christ gives us full worth. Christ gives us freedom. And Christ gives us forgiveness. 
Friends, you are fully known and fully loved by Christ. So as God is, so you do. We ought to be forgiving and freeing and restoring our spouses as well. To apply the gospel, to say to them, I'm in it with you, I know. And thanks be to God that in Christ he forgave us. And in that space is this gospel flourishing that changes lives.